Let's pray together. Father, we do uh, thank you for the gift of worship. We thank you that you are an object that is worthy of our worship, that your greatness is far greater than our minds can even conceive of and can even comprehend. But God, we're, we're amazed that not only are you great and wonderful, but that you love us. And just the truth of that song that we just sang, Lord, um, that you love us um, in a way that is so life-changing and is so powerful, that you didn't wait for us to love you, but you took the initiative. You loved us first. Father, we confess that often um, our affections for you are half-hearted. Often we can't even characterize how we feel about you as love. But Father, we pray that you would instill in us a burning passion and a desire for you and a love for you because we are so amazed at the fact that you have loved us. Be with us now as we look at your word and as we meditate on it. May your spirit speak to our hearts in powerful ways. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I am, a, if you don't know already, I'm a parent of three children. And if you are a parent of children, you know that you live in a constant battle with this thing called mess. Okay? It was, it was kind of bad when we have one child. It got worse when we had two and then it got really bad when we have three. I remember when I was in college, I would go visit families that had kids. And I'd notice that their house was kind of messy. And I'd, you know, remark, why can't they just clean it up? And why can't they just figure all this stuff, sort of stuff out? But now that I've had children, I've realized that parents have a constant, never-ending battle with this thing called mess and messiness. And here's what's happened. The minute you clean one room, you realize that your kids were in another room absolutely destroying that room. The mess is like an ocean. It's like the ocean. You ever had your parents go and tell you, don't ever turn your back on the ocean? Well, the mess at our house is like that. Don't ever turn your back on it because the minute you do, it will get you. It gets most interesting when we begin to have guests over, right? We have company over. We want to clean the house and we work really hard at a certain room and get it satisfactory to where we like it, only to discover that our kids have destroyed another room in the process. I will be totally honest. I've literally thought at moments, is there something I could attach my children to with duct tape to prevent them from destroying a room that I'm trying to clean? I know I get the Parent of the Year award for that, but I've actually thought those thoughts. We've never done it, but I've actually thought those thoughts before because it is so hard to stay on top of the mess. But what is often true about physical mess that we deal with in our lives is also true about our lives in general. Just when we feel like we've cleaned up a certain area of our life or there's a certain category that we kind of feel like we've had some victory in or we feel like we've grown in or something we feel like we've improved on, our eyes are open to another category of our lives that are a total mess that we didn't even realize before we uh, had it. What's true of us individually is often true of our families as well. I've been around long enough to know that every family has mess. There's just no question about it. No family has it all together. No family has it perfect. Every family has mess that we'd rather hide and not talk about, but it is a reality of everybody everybody that lives on this earth. Well, in the Old Testament, we see that God chooses to have a very special and unique relationship with one particular family. 
It doesn't mean that he doesn't have a relationship with other families. It doesn't mean that his special grace isn't available to all families. But for whatever reason in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Genesis, you see God intimately involved in the life of one particular family that ends up growing into a great nation. But what you could say about this family as you read throughout the book of Genesis, it it is one messy family. It is so messy that it would make you blush to kind of think about it or to live through it, but it's a messy family, but for whatever reason, God initiates this relationship with this family. It starts in Genesis 12 to 15 with a man called Abraham, where God comes and he comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to enter into a special relationship with you, a covenant with you, and you will grow into a great nation. You will be the head, you will be the leader, you will be the patriarch of a great nation. But Abraham throughout his life struggles to see that promise fulfilled. He knows that God has promised to make him into a great nation, but his wife is barren. She can't have any children, and he begins to doubt and wonder about the reality of God's promise. But eventually, in his old age, Sarah becomes pregnant. She gives birth to Isaac. And what you see throughout the generations is then, as Isaac grows and he gets older, God reaffirms the covenant that he made with Abraham. He reaffirms it with the next generation. He he gives these words of special blessing to Abraham's son Isaac, saying, I'm going to carry the promise I made to your father on to you. You see that in Genesis chapter 26. Well, what happens is Isaac finds a wife, and her name is Rebekah. And Rebekah quickly becomes pregnant with twins. And we're immediately told that as she becomes pregnant, these twins begin to actually have conflict with one another before they even leave their mother's womb. Now talk about sibling rivalry. I don't know if you have older brothers or sisters. These boys began to fight before they even left their mother's womb. But God says something really bizarre when it comes to this situation. He declares before these boys are even born... He declares that he is going to bring his special favor. He's going to bring his special blessing to the younger son and not the older son. That was bizarre in the ancient Near East culture because it was a very patriarchal society. But it was a patriarchal society that placed an incredible emphasis on the elder son. That elder son was the path in which God's blessing would go down. But for whatever reason, in the case of Isaac and Rebekah and their two boys, Jacob and Esau, God declares before they are even born that his special favor is not going to go with the eldest son, but it's going to go with the youngest son. It's going to go with Jacob. These two sons are born, and they cannot be any more different from one another, the scriptures tell us. It says that Jacob had a very quiet character. He was a homebody. It says he liked to dwell in the tents. But his brother Esau was very, very different. The scriptures describe him as a skillful hunter, a man of the wilderness. So these two boys from their birth are very different from one another. And there's all sorts of favoritism that happens in the family. Isaac favors his son Esau, the hunter-gatherer of the family. While Rebekah favors Jacob, she cherishes him, she loves him. But one of the things you learn very clearly about Jacob from the beginning is Jacob is a sneaky guy. His name actually means deceiver. And in Genesis 25, you see this, this, this play out in a, in a sense in where Jacob begins to steal the birthright 
of his, of his brother Esau. In Genesis 27, in cahoots with Rebekah, Jacob manages to steal the blessing from his brother. Nobody was innocent in these stories, but what Jacob does is he finds the weakness of all those people around him, his mother, his father, and his brother, and he exploits every single single of one of those weaknesses in order to get the very thing he desired most, to get the blessing. Now, it might not seem like a very big deal, but in the ancient Near Eastern culture, which we don't know a ton about, But what it says in that culture is there was a very special blessing that would be passed on to the eldest son. They would not only have the birthright, but they would actually have the family blessing from their parents. And what that meant was when it came to the inheritance, when it came to the estate, the elder son would always receive a double share of everyone else in the family. And they would also know that at the point in which the patriarch, at the point in which the father died, they would take over all the headship and all the leadership of the family. It was an extremely important role to be the eldest son. But what Jacob does in his sneakiness and his deception is he steals all the benefits of his elder brother away from him. And we know that there was power in the pronouncement, in Isaac pronouncing this blessing over Jacob. There's power in it in such a way that it cannot be revoked. So once Jacob seizes on it, once he grabs it, no matter how deceptive he does it, once he grabs it, it is his, and Esau no longer has it. As As you read through the story, your kind of sense of justice always really kicks in. You look at Jacob and you think, how could God honor such a deceiver. How could God honor someone that exploited other people's weaknesses? How could God bless someone that, uh, that went after those blessings in such uh, unrighteous and such unholy ways? Our sense of justice really kicks in whenever we read this story. But what lies behind our outrage is, is a formula that sometimes is, is against what the gospel actually teaches. Because when we look at the Jacob, we say, how could God bless him because of his behavior? And the formula we often buy into in life is this, that we are accepted by God because we are righteous. Many people think that. Many people think that that's the nature of true religion, is that we are accepted by God because we are righteous, because we are good, because we are true, and we deserve God's blessing, we deserve his love, and we deserve his grace. But the gospel says something very different. It reminds us that there's nothing that we can do to merit God's favor. It reminds us there's nothing we could do to earn his love for us. The gospel tells us that we love God because we're accepted. That his love for us is not based on our righteousness or our goodness or our moral performance. He loved us first and he saved us first and he entered into our lives. Jacob was not favored because there was anything righteous in him. He was favored because God chose him to be a vessel of his special grace. But of course, as you think of Esau in the story, you realize and you learn quickly as you read the story that Esau becomes furious. He becomes angry that his brother has done this. He realizes his own stupidity in it, but he becomes very angry at his brother for stealing all the blessings away from him. He becomes so angry that it no longer is safe for Jacob to live at his home. 
He wants to kill his brother. He immediately begins plotting on how he can kill his brother Jacob. How can he end his life? And he's just biding his time until the opportunity comes along. And Jacob realizes this. And Jacob realizes that he needs to leave, that his life is in danger. So what Jacob does is he flees into the wilderness. He flees into solitude for fear of his very own life. And at this point, it is clearly a low point in the life of Jacob. He is burdened, and he is alone. He's weighed down from all his deception. He's weighed down from his sin and his actions. He realizes his actions have actually estranged him from everybody that exists in his life. This homebody that liked to dwell in the tents, this, this guy that liked to be home and to be quiet, is now thrust out into the wilderness alone and burdened by what he has done. You know, I think about this point in Jacob's life, and I think about my own life, and I think about many of our stories, because I think many of us can relate to Jacob at this point. We've suffered times throughout our life where we feel very low, times in our life where we feel very alone, times in our life where we feel really estranged because of the mess that's in our lives. You see, the truth is sometimes that personal mess we deal with ends up becoming so prominent in our lives that it estranges us from everyone that's around us. It isolates us, and it makes us feel very alone. The story of Mary Monville has been circulating around the internet recently because of a recent book that she wrote about her life. I don't know if you ever heard that name Mary Monville before, but Mary Monville was a lifetime churchgoer, and she was really happy with her life. Everything was going well. Everything was wonderful about her life. But Marie, to her horror, on October 2nd in 2006, learned that her husband, who apparently had struggled, this comes out later, who apparently had struggled very deeply with depression, uh, she turns on the news and discovers uh, that her husband had actually barricaded himself into an into a Amish schoolhouse lined up 10 young girls and shot 10 of them, killing five of them in the process and then killing himself. You can imagine Mary's reaction when she hears that her husband was the one that did this awful crime in this Amish schoolhouse. She says that it surprised her. She had no idea that anything like this was coming. But in the wake of this horrible tragedy, Mary was, Marie was left with all sorts of questions How could God allow this to happen? What was she going to tell her children? Would people hold her responsible? Could her life be rebuilt in this process? CNN, which was covering her story, said this, In mere hours, Monville lost her husband and her children lost their father. Her close-knit community was terrorized and her family's name disgraced. Her innocence was despoiled and her evangelical faith tested. Marie wrote this about those moments right after learning what her husband had done. She said, I felt deserted, left behind to bear the weight of the world's judgment and questions alone. And I felt the weight pressing down upon me. No doubt Jacob at this moment in our story felt a similar weight upon his shoulders. The weight of his actions, the weight of what he had done that had estranged him from all that he knew in his life. You see, up until this point, God had never visited Jacob. He'd visited his father, Isaac. 
He'd visited his grandfather Abraham, but he'd never visited Jacob. And what we read in this story this morning is that God visits Jacob. God takes the the initiative. God visits Jacob in his most helpless and his most solitary and his most hopeless place. At Jacob's point where he is most vulnerable and most alone, God meets him in a very powerful and climactic way. It reminds me of the quote that C.S. Lewis said, When he said, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasure. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God speaks to Jacob for the first time in the midst of his pain, and it comes in the form of a megaphone. Jacob sees this vision of a ladder. Some translators interpret it as a staircase. And what the staircase does is it reaches all the way up to heaven. And Jacob sees, as he sees this great vision in his dream, he sees angels descending on this great ladder. And he sees angels ascending back and forth, up and down, between earth and in heaven. In the ancient Near East, these these structures were called ziggurats. And many people from pagan religions to orthodox religions would build these these towers called ziggurats. And what they believed was that those were the places at the very top of this ziggurat were the place where God came down and dwelt with humanity. But the steps on each one of those ziggurats were too big for humans to climb, reminding us that it is impossible for us to get up to God, but they were the places where God came, and they were the landing spot for the gods, and the steps were too big for men to be able to climb. You see, with this vision, this vision that would have been very similar in some ways to Jacob, but very different than anything he'd ever seen before, but in it comes the affirmation that God is going to be with him just as he was with his father Isaac and with his grandfather Abraham. He says to Jacob, In your most solitary moment, in your most vulnerable and helpless moment, I will be with you always, and I will fulfill my promises through you. Once Jacob wakes up, the scriptures tell us he was amazed. He was in this state of awe and amazement about what God had done, so much so that he renames the place in which this happened. He calls it Bethel, which means the house of God. He's filled with awe. He's filled with wonder. His life has changed in a powerful way, and he makes a vow to follow God with his life. And of course, as we'll see in the weeks to come, that vow would be tested. You know, the gospel tells us something very simple and yet something very beautiful in the story of Jacob. It tells us that God doesn't wait for you and I to clean up ourselves. He doesn't wait for us to figure out our mess. He doesn't wait for us to to fix things. Our mess does not repel him. It does not repulse him. But he simply enters into our lives and pours his grace in a powerful and life-changing way. Marie Monville, the, the, the woman I mentioned before, she says something very remarkable now, and she put it into a book. She wrote this about her life, looking back some ten, six, seven, eight years ago. She says this, If this wasn't my life, I never would have expected it to look this beautiful. In her book, she chronicles how almost immediately after her husband 
uh, committed this horrible tragedy, almost immediately after it happened, the Amish community came around her and enfolded her. They came to her. They showered her with her family with gifts and with meals and with love after the shooting. They'd wave to her at bus stops. They'd come to her house and ask if she needed any groceries, if there's anything that they could do for her. They encouraged her not to move. They encouraged her to stay in this community. And she said this. She said over and over again, God broke through my pain, revealed his presence, and restored my hope. See, the truth is the grace of God met her in a powerful way in the messiest moment of her life. And the same is true for you and I. God is not waiting for us to clean up our mess because the gospel tells us that we never really can sufficiently clean it up. But God shows up in the middle of our mess and he rescues us. You know, the question that we, I always ask myself when I think about this, whenever we think about the gospel, is how is this possible? What makes it possible for a just and holy and perfect God to be able to enter into our lives, to be able to enter into the mess, to be able to enter into the uncleanness of our lives? What makes it possible for God to do that? And the answer is revealed to us in John chapter 1, where Jesus uh, runs into Nathanael and begins to talk to Nathanael about this very story of Jacob that we just read. And the crux of what Jesus says to Nathanael is this, all of this is possible because I am the latter, because I am the staircase. What Jesus says to Nathanael is, I am the fulfillment of Jacob's dream. I am the fulfillment of his vision. And what the gospel tells us is that Jesus descended from heaven to be amongst us, to be amongst the mess, to be amongst the uncleanness, and to suffer what he suffered, to make it possible for you and I to ascend into heaven and to be in his presence. See, the truth is our tendency is either to hide our mess or to try to clean it up, especially as it relates to God. But all he asks us to do is to simply admit it and to receive his gift of grace by faith. One of our small groups is studying the story of the prodigal son. And if you've ever read the story of the prodigal son, you'll know it tells the story of two other brothers. One uh, that is the dutiful elder brother, and one is a younger brother who pretty much wastes his life. He gets all the inheritance he can from the father and it says he goes out into the world and he spends all that money on licentious living, on uh, prostitutes and partying and all this sort of stuff. And he, and, he, and he parties so much that he gets to this place where he's, he's now amongst pigs in uncleanliness and desiring their food. And what it says in the story is that at that moment he wakes up. At that moment he realizes that he needs to return to his father. So as he begins to return to his father, he starts to think internally about how he can clean things up. He starts to think internally and scheme about what he can do in his life to make things clean, to make them right. And he has this whole script played out about what he's going to say to his father so that he can be accepted in his father's presence. But the scriptures tell us that the father sees him far off. And the father jumps out of the house and runs after his son. 
And you can see, you can imagine the son seeing his father run towards him and says, starting to rehearse the script about how he's cleaned himself up, how he's figured it all out. But the father doesn't want to hear it at all. The father simply wants to embrace his son and kiss him and love him and accept him. See, the truth is, many of us want to clean ourselves up before God. We want to fix the mess. We want our good deeds to outweigh our bad. But all God wants to do is embrace us in his love, to kiss us on our neck, and to hug us with his grace. This is what God stands ready to do for you.